Hello and welcome to the new episode of Women in Customer Success podcast, the first women-only podcast where remarkable ladies of customer success share their stories and practical tools to help you succeed and make an impact. I'm Maria Skobe-Pile, your host. In today's episode, you're going to hear about different metrics in customer success how to decide what to measure, how to interpret metrics, and how to know the best actions based on the data. Let's tune in to the conversation with Apurva Sudarshan from Mixpanel. Today, I'm happy to welcome Apurva Sudarshan, Manager of Strategic Accounts at Mixpanel. Apurva, it is so nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Maria. It's so nice to be here. Apurva, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. I know you will give us loads of nice insights into the metrics of customer success. But before we go to that main theme, I know our listeners are very much interested to find out more about the guests. So I wonder, what is your story that you want to share with us? (laughs) Thanks for asking that. So I think my career in customer success started when I had the opportunity to either join a bigger org as an analyst straight out of college, or I had the chance to join this bootstrap startup as a management trainee. The role wasn't glamorous. The company was not well known, but I chose the latter. And I think that has shaped all the eventual choices that I made and where I am. So that's my story that I chose an unconventional path to start with. And then I really enjoyed customer interaction. I really enjoyed tying customer outcomes to the business and and go-to-market strategy. So eventually, of course, I've gravitated towards more stable businesses while staying true to my first love of customer success. But that's my story. I just made a few, like the first unconventional choice in my career. And here I am. That's excellent. When you say unconventional choice, would that mean that people around you advising you, oh, go for the big name, for the big company, of course, right? (laughs) And then you went for the smaller one. Absolutely. And I think uh, back when customer success, like five, six years ago, was not a glamorous role. It was often confused with customer support. And then my parents, for example, would tell somebody that she's in customer success and they would think, why is she not doing well? What's <laughs> you, oh, no, <laughs> oh no, oh no. <laughs> That's the worst thing that can happen. <laughs> I know. And because the alternative and especially in APAC, I think you'll see that the roles of analysts or software engineers or even marketing, for example, were well-defined and well-known. So for anybody not choosing conventional, even non-tech roles was just like, hey, what happened? Maybe you should do an MBA. Um, (laughs) And, you know, maybe that will bring you back in line. So I chose not to do an MBA. I chose to learn on the job. And I chose to trust my gut and stay in SaaS in customer success. And I feel like the community, the role has evolved so beautifully today where we are all adding value in our own ways. So I'm very happy that I didn't be an analyst because I don't think I would have been a good analyst or a backend engineer, honestly. So I'm certainly happy that you're in customer success. And well, what I can see in general in the whole community of customer success in India is that, gosh, it is growing so massively, so rapidly and so beautifully. And I even noticed like just in the last few years, 
I do feel that the conversation shifted as well. As you mentioned, perhaps previously, I know in some of the companies where I worked, like people would have those offshore offices in India for support, right? Maybe it started like that, but yeah. then more and more customer success is becoming, as I would say, more real customer success, more proactive, not only support and reactive. So I wonder from your perspective, unconventional choice was behind you. And when did your kind of community accept that customer success is like an amazing industry and amazing role to be in? Did it ever happen or do we need to do some more convincing? <laughs> no, it happened. So I think as a part of customer success, the really good part is you go and meet clients in person. And sometimes you are, you know, as a CSM, you are exposed to CXO level of employees in other organizations. So there were times where I would travel and I was meeting really good folks in really big companies in India. And that's when my parents realized that, oh, okay, if she <laughs> has a seat at the table <laughs> with this XYZ person, maybe it's not that bad. <laughs> so I think the acceptance or, okay, maybe she's not doing that bad happened because I was able to meet with these folks and have good conversations and not draw a bad salary also. So <laughs> unfortunately, salary is still a benchmark of somewhat of a benchmark of success then acceptance happened there. But I'm really happy that your parents are happy <laughs> at the moment with, with customer <laughs> success. Like, okay, it's so not engineering. I know, I know. So you're not doctor, you're not engineer, but you're flourishing in customer success. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, oh, Purva, actually. tell me more about your role at the moment. You can tell me a bit more what you do, but what I really wonder is what is the best thing that you enjoy in your role in customer success? Absolutely. I started off at Mixpanel a few months ago. And right now I am in a transitioning role because I'm going to move back to pure customer success by next February. So what I'm doing right now could be customer success in a lot of organizations. I think some organizations call it relationship management and it falls under the bucket of sales. But the angle or the flavor that I like to bring into my role is of customer success. So what I do currently is that I'm working with 50 plus of our good top businesses in India, in APAC, and I'm just trying to make sure that they're on track for achieving ROI with Mixpanel and they have everything that they need, a good implementation. If some other feature of ours catches there, I, I help them through the upgrade process. And I think staying engaged with them throughout I would also add that it's a bit of a change from my last role where it was very high touch customer success to I have sort of scaled back a little bit because it's difficult to be high touch with 50, 60 customers. So that's been interesting to scale engagement, to provide the same quality of conversation and engagement while not doing as many calls. So it's been so much learning for me, so many tools that I did not know before because, you know, I was just using Google Sheets. I was just using emails by myself. So I've learned a lot in this role. And this is wonderful how you had the exposure to high touch and now to more scale or more digital customer yeah. success. And I'm really interested, perhaps you can briefly explain to the audience, what is the difference in those engagements and what is it that you do now on a daily basis? How are you engaging with so many of your customers? 
So when I was doing, I think, high-touch customer success, I did not record Loom videos, for example, right? Like Loom was a tool that was always available. I'd heard of it, but because everybody knew me by name, knew my phone number, I had gone down to their office. I never felt the need to record, hey, here's how to do this XYZ on this dashboard. And I'm your customer success manager. So right now I do record these videos, like quick 30-second how-tos. And I've seen that they're very versatile. You can send them to different people, because it doesn't have to be customer specific. I've also started using tools like Mixmax or Outreach, wherein I am sending personalized emails at scale. And they're also doing follow-ups on my behalf because most of the replies happen when you follow up. And these tools are able to get me good engagement with my audience. And I think, yeah, these are things that I was not doing before. So two of the things that I can think of. Okay, so now your customers are receiving uh, valuable training content where you are showing them how to do things that are quick wins, right? When you say 30 seconds video, that means that they can do the same thing in 30 seconds or a minute and it will bring them value. So they are receiving values through your digital engagement because you're sending that over emails, right? Yes, absolutely. Versus earlier, I would be like, okay, we can cover this in our quarterly business review when I come down to your office and spend a day with you. (laughs) And of course, that whole world has changed completely right now. Absolutely. And I would think even in high touch model now, you can't see people yet face to face and doesn't really matter because I'm sure they would enjoy the 30 seconds video of how to as well. That is something that everybody needs. It's not only based on how much customers pay you. They really need that type of engagement. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think the pandemic has brought a few important questions to the foreground. And I remember seeing recently a post about it is that do QBRs really add value or do you want them mm. you know, off your checklist? Because... <laughs> You think they add value versus customers are happy. They just want to see value from your product. And if you're able to show them that as quickly as you can, you don't need to be in their office. It's completely fine. Absolutely. I could ask you even more, how do you deal with customers on scale? But what I'm probably more interested in is, what are those important metrics for you, especially in dealing with customers at scales? As we mentioned, one of those metrics they may not have QBR, so you can't actually tick all of those boxes. <laughs> well, just an example. So I wonder, take us through that journey of the metrics that you are currently working on with your customers. So I have a dashboard where I'm tracking most of these metrics that I'm going to talk about. But broadly, when I think about metrics, I try to bucket them in three buckets. The first bucket is how are they engaging with your product? And this can be, you can keep track of weekly active users, monthly active users, or daily active users based on what kind of product you have and see that what is the rate of returning or retention that they have with your product. So that's one of the top ones, which is WAU, MAU or DAU. The second thing that I like to think about is, do they have value moments within your product? And these may be easy to track. I mean, I'm able to track because I work at Mixpanel. We use Mixpanel for Mixpanel. So (laughs) I'm able to 
Yeah, I'm able to understand that does an end user of Nextpanel come and create a report on their own? Have they shared it with somebody? So those are the value moments. And sometimes it's really helpful to see that as an org, are people having enough value moments or not? So that's a part of the first bucket. The second bucket is support. So I feel like support is still an auxiliary function that we need to work very closely with. So how are they rating your support if you have a support team? What kind of NPS, CSAT are they giving you? And what are the number of tickets that they're raising? If it's very high, it's certainly not good news. But if you don't hear from them at all, that definitely means that they're not using your product if they don't have any issues. Even I think the most established enterprise brands still face issue, right? Slack has outages, Zoom has outages. So they should definitely be raising tickets to support. So that's the second bucket that I think about, which is how they engage with support. I think the third thing is slightly not as tangible and not as metrics driven, but I still try to keep a track of it on a Google sheet is how are they engaging with your brand outside of the product, right? Are they attending webinars? Are they coming to your community meetups? Are they attending your meetings in general? Or are they open to being referrals when your sales asks for new business referrals? and how they're engaging with the rest of the org that you have. I think that also ties into customer success at some point. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that one up particularly, because very often I'm hearing about all these other ones and that partnership is sometimes omitted. It's all almost under the bucket of customer advocacy, right? When the customers are engaging with you more through anything that you are putting out there for them, they are becoming your partners. They want to be part of your brand. They are your ambassadors, even if you don't ask them to be your ambassadors. And they are more likely to to give you good reviews, even on website, on socials, not and especially if they are asked by sales. But for me, that one is incredibly important, especially now. Like Maybe a few years ago, it wasn't the case, but I have certainly noticed that maybe since last year, since the pandemic, since there is so much more virtual exposure, the brand recognition and the brand awareness online is extremely important. And I, as a customer, I want to be connected with some great brands out there. If I'm attending their webinars, even for companies, I'm not yet customer. I want to be part of their community and their brand just because I feel they're amazing, even if I'm not using them yet on a daily basis. Okay, as a user, I'm not representing all your customer base. I just got a little bit carried away. But yeah, I'm really happy that you included that engagement piece. I wonder, can you talk to me more about the users, like daily, weekly, monthly active users? I think as a metric, that's something that everyone always tried to look at. But then how do you define what are the type of users whom you want to be users on monthly basis, not on a daily or on a weekly? So how do you make sure that you are keeping track of proper type of users for the appropriate metric? That's a great question, Maria. And I think we will have to take a step back and understand what kind of personas of users do we have to begin with, right? You're going to have your exec level who's probably going to log in once a quarter and that's okay. That's completely okay because all they need to do is be aware of your product at the back of their head. So renewal when it comes time to sign (laughs) on the order form, it's not a surprise to them. But I think I usually segregate based on two things. One is their current role 
and also the life cycle of their knowledge of the product there's going to be your exec level and there's going to be people who derive value the operator level uh, folks using your product and then there's going to be people who've been using your platform for a year two years and then there's going to be people who've just joined so i think all four of these journeys look completely different so what we have done at mixpanel is that if somebody is a new user what do we expect them to do so we have certain global benchmarks and we're an extremely data driven org that way so we already know what kind of numbers we should expect or what kind of engagement we should expect if somebody is new on the platform and once they start becoming a more advanced user once they start going through their life cycle we keep track of what that engagement looks like is it dropping down are they not having as many value moments as somebody in this cohort should and we yeah so we keep track of all of that it's very important to know your persona because different personas are going to use your product in a different way and that's yeah exactly fine and normal and you wouldn't have different expectations for maybe wrong persona that's good the next one you mentioned the value moments within the products so some particular dashboards creating some things maybe little milestones i wonder how do you define those value moments is it something that you as a company think this is what we identify as value moments is that coming from the customers what would you say to someone who is looking to understand the value moments in their organization and in their product where to start with how we've arrived at those value moments within mixpanel has been two things one we looked at data what are people doing in our product the most and what is our product designed for so there definitely has to be an overlap between what do we intend our product to be used for and what are people doing on it and that is probably the top north star metric that we look at so in terms of value moments because we are a product analytics dashboard where people come and build reports to see their end user behavior so what we would look at is how many people are viewing a report how many people are creating reports or how many people are sharing reports and it's possible to club all of this into value moments and call it like mixed panel value moment so a b c like whatever you can have three or four the flexibility that fortunately mixed panel allows for us as <laughs> when we dog food is that i can combine a plus b plus c plus d as a formula and call it value moments so mm-hmm. i think to begin with i'm looking at the natural habit of a user within our dashboard and just trying to see auxiliary habits and functions around that Okay so this is really interesting like you are understanding the behavior of the users and then that's how you define what are those valuable moments for them and of course it needs to tie into what the product provides okay yeah. that's really good and talking about the next one the support i like how you said of course you want your end users to engage with support period if it's too yeah. high Uh, it's not great if it's too low or not at all of course it's not great it's showing something else you mentioned support as a metric what do you mean by that what would be a healthy result of support engagement so not too high which indicates something yeah. is wrong and not too low indicating again and users are not even using it so i think when i'm looking at support tickets i'm looking at ticket volume so i'm saying at least minimum of one ticket a month and this can become two or five tickets suppose i have say 
hundred users in an organization. It's an enterprise org. Then just one ticket a month is not good enough. Then I'm going to probably increase that number to say that from hundred folks, I expect at least ten tickets a month to come in. Versus if it's a startup and there's six people using the product, it's fine that. they reach out to us once a month so based on the size of the org we have come up with different tiers and the second bit is that how are they rating your support so that bit is fairly simple what kind of nps what kind of csat nps uh, they can actually give on the product itself so for customer support i look at csat and somebody who has consistently given negative csat that's alarming not just because they're not understanding but probably something's wrong with their implementation they're not able to achieve and understand get to the bottom of the issue with support so consistently negative csat zero support tickets month on month I don't think any platform is that intuitive or easy that they don't reach out to your support at all. <laughs> so <laughs> be that's ideal world, huh? <laughs> I wish, but then our roles will be redundant. So <laughs> yeah, so these are the two main things I look at. I think this is really great to have that data at hand. So I wonder once you understand, oh, this customer is really—it seems that they are struggling, right? They are giving us poor reviews, and at the end of the day, they are still struggling with the product because it wasn't configured properly. What do you do with that data? How do you then take it back to the customer, or even internally? I think with the customer, we are very upfront and honest, and we say that, hey, we see a trend in your engagement with our support. and we would like to understand what is going wrong that we are consistently receiving a negative csat from your side can we hop on a quick call and on the first call i don't think you need any technical resource you just need to go yourself and ask them what's happening what's going wrong what do they think is going wrong and eventually once you understand your product well enough i think you can also guess where the issue is right in which area and pull in the technical resource accordingly so with the customer i just keep it simple i drop an email and i ask for a call and internally what i usually do is that i will raise it on slack on our internal groups and saying that something looks off let's look at other metrics of this particular customer what is their nps like if their csat is bad is the nps also bad have they been attending any meetings at all how many times are they even logging into our product so we just go a level deeper into their engagement with our product overall and usually that's where you'll find the issue somewhere in that general area you will find the root of the problem it's really interesting so as you go deeper you're getting more understanding into what could be the root cause of their unhappiness their troubles and just trying to find solution for them which probably is then completely on another spectrum from your last metric which is engagement right the seemingly happy customers who are attending all the activities that you are organizing for them so tell me more about how do you track that engagement as a very important metric i think how they're engaging with the rest of the brand is something that we're not tracking via a dashboard we're not like to be very honest there's not like some very defined high tech process in place with its own beautiful chart what i think each customer success manager and account manager is doing is that they have a google spreadsheet of their accounts and where they can put in comments and we do have 
where you're tracking your health score and everything, right? So there is also rough comments where you will put in saying, this customer did not show up for the last quarterly meeting. This customer has not shown up for any community event or I tried sending them swag, but they never filled up the address, for example, right? So it's going to be, I think, a text box and that's okay. But it gives you an idea that out of say 30 or 50 of my customers, are there five problematic ones that are not engaging at all? Okay, okay. So you have different types of engagement. You mentioned some. How do you get to know what is the appropriate engagement model for different type of customers? Like for some, if they don't show up to QBR, it doesn't really matter. Maybe they're still so happy using it. They just didn't have time then or they feel it's all good. I don't need that call, but they may yeah. need something else. So how do you then approach that data? Okay, so let me understand your question better. So you're saying that based on the engagement models or how do I look at various data? So somebody who is, say, you know, one of the top five accounts for you personally as a business, you're tracking revenue, right? So a top five account for you, they're not showing up for QBR, definitely a problem. And I think a lot of it, fortunately or unfortunately, ties back to the revenue, to the contract size. And in general, I think what I look at is that, fine, if they didn't show up for the QBR, do their other metrics look healthy? Like, do they have enough value moments on the dashboard? Are they happy with our support? Are they happy with the other auxiliary functions that they're working with? So it's okay if they don't show up for my meeting, but if they're interacting with other customers, that's fine. If they're not showing up for my meeting, they are my top five customer in the region they are not using the dashboard, that's when I would say that they are a super unhealthy customer. And mm-hmm. to double down into health, we do have a health metric, like a health score, which we have devised in-house. And one part of that is a formula that comes from the account value, the ARR, and the weekly active users. Certain account value should have certain weekly active users. And if that number falls below a certain threshold, then we say that it's an unhealthy customer. Okay. So yeah, that all makes absolute sense because I was thinking, you know, if someone doesn't show up on your QBR, okay, it's not the end of the world, but then you don't want to wait until another QBR just to see will they show up, right? Because they, you will just devise lots of different activities in between. Otherwise, they can just fall into the cracks and go... <laughs> Absolutely. So I think one thing that's been working very well for us in our predictability to understand health is the health score, which is defined as ACV by AWAU, which is weekly active users. Hmm. Okay. So it's interesting. It just seems that you have the nicely devised kind of recipe for success for your customers, right? What does a healthy customer looks like? And then you just have a different ways of engaging with them or different type of engagement based on different levels of customers and their health. Yeah. Great. Apurva, thank you so much for providing us this nice overview of the metrics. How do you design different type of metrics in your customer success organization? I wonder when it comes to you and your career, and you told us a little story about how when you started, maybe your role in customer success wasn't seen as something amazing, but now it's all looking good. So I wonder what would be your message to other aspiring leaders in customer success? and potentially someone who just wants to enter the industry at the moment. 
That's a really good question, Maria. So I think my advice would be that when you're going ahead in your career, it's a marathon, right? So don't do things with an end objective in mind. So if you've been given a tip that going on webinars is the top way to get a new job, and if you're not enjoying yourself in the process, the whole purpose is lost. So my tip is continue doing things that you like, that you're naturally inclined towards without an end objective, both personally and professionally. I think that's the only way to find happiness in your career. And I think another thing that I feel has worked for me is that don't limit your scope. So whenever you're starting in a new role, help in whatever way that you can without burning yourself out and start documenting your personal wins that you feel are your personal wins. Because when it comes to those self-reviews at the end of a quarter, I used to really struggle because I'm not somebody who can, you know, bloat up. And I found myself really wondering what I had really done that quarter. So I started putting down in a document like what I think is a good win at the end of every week. And that's been a really helpful and valuable small tip that worked for me. That is really good. So at least on a weekly basis, document your wins, your successes. As you said, comes end of quarter. It's nice to have it handy to understand what have you achieved. But document because it's just sometimes so easy to even forget. Because if you're on back-to-back to meetings, you by the end of the day, you forgot about those great things that happened in the morning potentially. So just document everything. Absolutely. I think as humans, we tend to remember the bad moments. For a much longer time. (laughs) So at the end of the quarter, you will remember that bad customer conversation or that escalation. But you will forget somebody who said, oh, thank you so much for helping me out with this XYZ thing. And it's only human. So I started just putting all of it in a Google document. That is a wonderful advice. And Apurva, I really like how you mentioned to be happy in your career. And I'm going to finish with this question. I want to understand from you, what are some of the tips that you have learned throughout your career that made you content and happy in your roles and in your overall career? Thank you for that. What has made me really happy as I have progressed is setting very clear boundaries between personal life and work life. When I started working, of course, I was one of those people who would work till 9 p.m., 10 p.m., I would stay in office and I would feel that I'm doing so much work. I'm doing so much important work. And I think I feel like this case might be true for a lot of people, but do not count your work hours for your contribution. You know, you are more than the number of hours you put in. You bring in more value than that. So don't compensate for work hours for some other lack that you feel within yourself. Right. So I have learned to do that. So I believe in leading a fuller life today. I believe in giving time to fitness. I believe in giving time to my family, my son, and not feeling guilty about not working till 9 p.m. So I think that's this is the best advice that people can hear out there. It's not the hours, it's the outcomes anyway, (laughs) especially now when work and life is all intertwined into one. Absolutely. Thank you for, for telling, Absolutely. for saying that and for giving permission to everyone who thinks that just constantly working will bring you all the amazing things in your career. That's not, not all true. that it takes. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think another thing is a personal lesson for me from having had a kid a year ago is that I did not tell my manager till the end of the first trimester because that's the norm, right? You're not supposed to talk about your pregnancy until you're four months in. And honestly, the first trimester can be one of the most difficult because your body is so tired, you're just going through so many changes and you still have your quarterly goals, right? So I think break that barrier and break that legacy that I shouldn't talk about my pregnancy until a certain point and just tell your boss because you're going to need support in that first trimester, girl. <laughs> you're going to need everybody to help you out. So that's one thing I wish I had done differently. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, you're going to need that nap at some point. Power nap to take you through the end of the day <laughs> at the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, this is wonderful advice. And Apurva, one question that you wish other people would ask you more often. I wish people would ask what kind of effort goes into making your personal and professional life work like people just see LinkedIn updates and they're like oh this like you're doing so well you're doing this there's a lot of effort that goes in behind that and there's a lot of putting the baby to bed and then coming back and working and doing a ton of things and it's not just luck it's not just being at the right place at the right time and I wish people acknowledged or asked more about that Wow, what a way to end the episode. I really like how you mentioned, yes, there is so much effort in putting baby to bed, trying to make them eat, trying to do all the other things in between work. And again, when you're completely exhausted at the end of the day with all that, going back to work, right? <laughs> yes, there's a lot of discipline. I think it's understated how much planning and discipline and really like managing your time it takes to put all of these things into place. It's not just good luck. Absolutely not. And Apurva, thank you so much for sharing this. And let's make sure that we do acknowledge what happens behind the change at LinkedIn profiles, as you said, or, or, <laughs> or, or any other thing that just can look like, oh, wow, an amazing thing happened. Yes, it did. But what was behind? That's the stories that we should start exploring more and more. Thank yes, you so much for yes, coming to the show, Apurva. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me, Maria. This has been absolutely great. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Next week, new episode. Subscribe to the podcast and connect with me on LinkedIn so you're up to date with all the new episodes and the content I'm curating for you. Have a great day and talk to you soon.